Good evening. I'd like to welcome everyone to uh, tonight's event, uh, including those of you who are watching uh, online. Uh, my name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm the head of international relations and the director of the U.S. Center here at the LSE, uh, which is hosting tonight's conversation. It is a great honor and a privilege to be able to introduce tonight's guest, Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi. I suspect everyone in the theater knows that Speaker Pelosi is the highest ranking elected uh, woman in American history, perhaps less fully appreciated, is she's also widely regarded by political analysts in the United States as the most influential speaker since Sam Rayburn back in the 1940s and 50s. <laughs> This is her second, her second stint as a speaker, having broken what she famously called the marble ceiling in 2007 as the first woman to be elected speaker, um, and serving before that uh, for many years as the minority leader and, the, uh, and before that the minority whip. Um, speaker Pelosi has been a member of Congress for over 30 years, representing the good people of the greater San Francisco area. San Francisco. <laughs> In that time, she has led on issues ranging from um, the fight against AIDS to enacting gun control to defending human rights in China. Along the way, she has established a truly remarkable record of legislative accomplishment that includes... I think what many people consider to be the greatest U.S. legislative achievement of our era, the Affordable Care Act of 2010, otherwise known as Obamacare. In recognition... That's an applause line. <laughs> in recognition of her uh, tireless commitment to fight for those less fortunate and to overcome long political odds in doing so, Next month, Speaker Pelosi will be awarded the prestigious John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award. Um, this is the Speaker's second visit to the LSE. She was here in 2013. Tonight, she's joined by her husband, Paul Pelosi, and a congressional delegation that's come to London as part of a visit that began uh, with meetings in uh, Stuttgart with the U.S., European, and Africa military commands and that will culminate um, with meetings in, um, with political and civilian leaders in Dublin uh, and Northern Ireland. We're delighted to have all of you uh, in the, the room here this evening, in the theater this evening. And we're also pleased to welcome back two uh, LSE alums that are part of the, um, the delegation, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro uh, from the great state. Congresswoman comes from the great state of Connecticut. That's my home state, too. <laughs> and also Mr. Drew Hamill, the Speaker's Deputy Chief of Staff, who really did so much to make this evening. <laughs> so a few um, quick housekeeping notes before we get started. First of all, if you haven't already turned your phone to silent, please do so, uh, because we are, in addition to live streaming, we are recording this event uh, for those of you in the House this evening, uh, consider yourself very lucky. Over 3,000 people tried to get seats here. Um, so a lot of people were turned away. But for those of you who are watching online, uh, 
We haven't forgotten you. There's going to be an opportunity to send in questions. Uh, the U.S. Center team is here working on Twitter, and we will work in a couple questions uh, over the next hour uh, at hashtag LSE Pelosi. Uh, finally, for those of you in the audience, here's the game plan for about the next um, maybe half hour or so. I will put a number of questions to, um, to Speaker Pelosi, and then we will open it up and take questions from the floor, and I will do my level best to get as many questions in as, as possible. So, welcome back to the LSC. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Um, it's a great honor and a privilege uh, for the U.S. Center and for me personally uh, to be hosting this discussion with you. And I got to tell you, I got a lot of questions for you. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, I mean, from um, the Mueller report, which I just read is going to be released, the redacted version of it will be released on Thursday uh, to the 2020 election, to immigration, to you-know-who's tweet storm over the weekend. Um, but I, I thought I'd start with a question about um, foreign policy and NATO, um, especially as you're coming off the visit from Germany. Um, as you know, there's a great deal of anxiety about U.S. leadership in, in this country, in Europe, really, frankly, across the West. And um, there's a sense that America's commitment to the liberal international order that successive presidents, Republicans as well as Democrats, did so much to build and sustain um, is in jeopardy, that it's weakening, and that President Trump's on-again, off-again support for NATO is of special concern, I think, to, to many people here. Um, I, was, I was struck by the fact that you had recently um, invited uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, to come and um, speak to Congress. And it's particularly notable, it's a precedent, because um, in NATO's 70 years, no uh, NATO chief has ever spoken uh, to a joint session of, of Congress. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the visit, um, Stoltenberg's visit, the speech, and whether when you kind of look at things, whether you think that we've hit some kind of inflection point uh, in terms of America's relations with its allies. Thank you so much for your kind words of welcome. I, I accept your compliments on behalf of my colleagues in the House of Representatives who did so much to make many of those accomplishments possible, and I'd like them to stand so I can recognize them. And it's Rosa DeLauro, you acknowledge. Congresswoman Susan Del Bene of Washington State, Brian Higgins of New York, Dan Kildee of Michigan, Brendan Boyle of Pennsylvania, uh, uh, Steve Horsford of Nevada, Joe Courtney of Connecticut, John Larson of Connecticut. There's something here. This is all in your honor, Peter. <laughs> I, I, it's an honor to be here with them and with Drew and with Drew. The invitation of, of, to the Secretary General to come to speak to a joint session of Congress, yes, was not only unusual, it was unique, and it was bipartisan. It was bipartisan. Um, uh, leader Mitch McConnell and I, as well as the other leaders, Chuck, uh, Chuck Schumer and, and Kevin McCarthy, extended that invitation. But Mitch was very bullish on extending the invitation. So it was bipartisan, bicameral. And it was important for us because we wanted 
uh, that statement to be made that in the Congress of the United States, we respect NATO, we want to honor its seven years of, of uh, accomplishments, and to see how we can work together to strengthen NATO. Previous to that, a few, like a couple of months before in the House, we passed legislation supporting uh, a resolution supporting NATO, had over 350 votes uh, in the House, and we took that to the Munich, uh, uh, Munich Security Conference and to Brussels as well uh, to show the support in the Congress. Uh, the question, uh, the, what the President did in terms of placing in doubt our commitment to Article 5 and the rest, I think is now behind us. Uh, but we just wanted to be sure that everyone knew uh, how uh, committed we were uh, to uh, the transatlantic alliance in every way, NATO being the security alliance, the EU, uh, and other uh, manifestations of uh, how this, as, gen as uh, <laughs> I'll call him by his former name, the Secretary General said, uh, the Atlantic Ocean does not divide us, it, it unites us. One thing I was pretty glad about, I mean, his speech was wonderful and peaceful and, and uh, diplomatic and all of that. It was fabulous. Wow. But he also talked about climate, which I think is one of the biggest uh, global challenges that we face. And it is a national security, a, secure, a global security issue, as well as an economic issue, a health issue, and a moral issue to uh, pass this, this planet on to next generation in a responsible way. That's great. Well, thank you. Um, I've got a Brexit question. You don't get out of here without it. Before you ask a question, tell us about you. <laughs> so I got off the boat here in 2013. I had taught for many years at the University of Texas at Austin. Oh, that's a and, great school. Uh, both my wife and I came here. Um, kind of standard story. Kids went off to college and looking for a new opportunity, and this has just been a terrific place. So... Back Before you go, I want to <laughs> Peter Turkwitz and also uh, pro director Simon Hicks. Simon Hicks, thank you, Simon. Thank you for the hospitality extended this evening thank you as for well. Um, so, so you have a Texas connections. I, I, I do. Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. yes. Well, I have grandchildren in Houston, so I have grandchildren almost every place. But, uh, <laughs> well, I have. I have. We actually have something in common. I'm one of seven. All right, so there we you, go. Right? There so I've, are. Got, I've got family all over the place <laughs> as well. Um, so, a few weeks ago, the U.S. Center was also hosting Senator Chris Murphy, as it turns Wonderful. out, also from Connecticut. Is it so? So, um, <laughs> and he made some news while he was here. Um, he, one of the things he said was that the UK couldn't count on Congress going along with the very, very big trade deal that um, President Trump is promising the UK, at least not if the Brexit deal includes a hard border in Ireland, which he said would put the 20-year-old Belfast Good Friday Agreement at risk. Um, and as he reminded the audience, it's he said, you know, President Trump doesn't get to make this decision alone. The Congress is involved in this. And, and, um, uh, and I think, you know, given that you, um, Congressman Neal, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, and other members of the delegation are on your way to um, 
Dublin, I thought maybe I'd give you an opportunity to speak I'm, to this. Issue. Well, I completely agree with what uh, Senator Murphy had to say. You know, he's from the House, <laughs> so we take great pride in his uh, leadership. Let me say this. On our trip, which is our delegation is led by Congressman Mr. Chairman Richie Neal, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, which is the Committee of Jurisdiction uh, for Trade Legislation. And on this trip, every place we have gone, every meeting we've had, we've conveyed uh, to, to our friends, our cousins in the uh, UK, uh, that if there's any weakening of the, uh, the, uh, good, the Good Friday Accords, uh, well, first of all, let me say, it's very hard to pass a trade bill in the Congress of the United States. So there's no given anyway. But if there were to be any weakening of, a, of the Good Friday Accords, that there would be no chance whatsoever, a non-starter for a U.S.-U.K. trade agreement. Now, let me just say this. It's not just, I mean, the, the Good Friday Accords ended like 700 years of conflict. It's not just about that geography, though. This is not a, a treaty only. It's an ideal. It's a value. It's something that is a model to the world, something we all take pride in. The U.S., President Clinton, uh, Senator um, George Mitchell, and others, Richie Neal, as a matter of fact, and others uh, were involved in all of that for a long period of time. And, of course, it was the U.K., uh, the, the, the Northern Ireland people, as well as uh, the Taoiseach in, in Ireland, who all participated. It was hard, but it was a model, and other people have used it as a model, and we don't want that model to be something uh, that can be bargained away in some other uh, agreement. So make no mistake, and we've met with, uh, we've met with the speaker. We learned how to say, come on, guys. <laughs> I served with Speaker in my former Speaker days, so I know him for a while. We met with him, but then we met with the um, leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, and we met with those who left the Labor Party, and we made it clear to all that if there is any harm to the Good Friday Accords, no trade agreement. And then today, we, that was yesterday, today we met with the, uh, the government, with the um, uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Deputy Prime Minister uh, and Liddington and those who are in opposition in the Conservative Party uh, to the, the governing, the, their uh, government, to the government. And to all of them, we made it clear. Don't even think about that. How'd that go? Well, we were clear. We had clarity. <laughs> However, I have to say, and my colleagues speak up if you disagree, every single, including uh, Theresa May, whom we spoke to by phone, everyone had said, don't even worry about it. That's unthinkable. We wouldn't even go near that one. It's good news because <laughs> that's a place that we cannot go. So I completely agree uh, with what Chris Murphy said, but it's what we've all been saying for, uh, for a while as well. Right. Well, thank you. Um, let's go to the other side of the world. I've got a question about China. Right. Um, 
So in America's many think tanks, there's a lot of talk, a lot of chatter these days about U.S. policy towards Beijing needs to be tougher, that after a quarter century of relying heavily on trade and investment uh, to try to get China to democratize and to become more of an international uh, stakeholder, um, that Washington uh, needs to begin taking a harder line economically and militarily. And even some of those that have you know, championed engagement uh, with uh, China uh, in the past are talking about a kind of Soviet-style containment strategy that the United States should, should move towards. Um, I'm, when you survey the political landscape in the United States, and especially in the Congress, um, I, I'm wondering what the sense of travel or direction is. is are, are the the think tankers at a step with the politics inside the United States and uh, or, or, or are we actually moving in that direction and if so I mean, what kind of response should we expect from Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership? Well uh, I'm very disappointed that what is happening under the uh, President, Xi, the President Xi that things are getting worse in terms of human rights in China. One million Uyghurs, Muslims in China are in education camps. Uh, I need to tell you about Tibet where they're suppressing the faith, the, the religion, the language, the culture, and saying we're, we're doing great things in Tibet. Uh, uh, Hong Kong, well, I have to express my disappointment in the UK government over time in terms of Hong Kong because in the transition, they really didn't see to it that the basic law was, uh, was honored, but that's that's that. But the, uh, because of money, I mean, uh, what I say is, and then, then it's just human rights in China writ large in terms of in Beijing or all over the country. The human rights situation has greatly worsened under President Xi. So this thought that engagement was going to improve human rights and democratization, nobody's thinking of a, a democracy, but at least that people could speak out without being arrested and the rest. So, um, so that's unfortunate. But what I've said over and over, and I say right here, if we refuse to, to speak out against human rights violations in China because of commercial interest, we have lost all moral authority to talk about human rights any other place in the world. Their size, their... <laughs> My colleagues who have served with me for a long time know that this is an issue that I... Uh, I, every day I read about what's happening in China militarily, commercially, human rights-wise, and the rest. And uh, way back 30 years ago, which we're going to have the anniversary on June 4th of Tiananmen Square, was when I started my um, campaign to, uh, to free the prisoners of Tiananmen Square, stop the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and missiles technology to rogue countries as well as to open up our markets. Uh, I had to, I could win every vote on most favored nation that we would, we would set some standards in the rest, but I could not override vetoes of Democratic and Republican presidents. So this is not partisan. Everybody was just, you got to go with China. And you know what? When, when, when I was first making this fight, this is so self-serving, but you asked. I did. 
<laughs> when I first started this challenge to our China policy, the trade deficit was $5 billion a year. And I thought, $5 billion, for surely they'll free the prisoners of Tiananmen Square. For surely they'll stop violating our intellectual property and give us market access. For surely they'll stop transferring missile technology to Pakistan and elsewhere. Oh, you're all wrong. Peaceful evolution is all going to change. Do you know what the trade deficit is now? More than $5 billion a week. A week. We just gave away the store. We, we decided we would ride that dragon, and the dragon decides when you're going to get off from a commercial standpoint. And, and of course, now we have. Now, I've fought with the Chinese so long that some of us have become friends. And so we work on climate issues. Right. You know, we work together sure. on climate issues, and I've taken delegations there on climate. I've taken delegations to Tibet. As President Xi said, go see for yourself. I said, give me a way, give me a visa. I've been trying for 25 years to get a visa. They gave us a visa, and we went and saw for ourselves that, that what was happening there was most unfortunate. Same thing, as they say, in Hong Kong, that, uh, to just name two places. But the, uh, the Uyghurs, a million people in education camps right now because they're Muslim and because they're not Han Chinese. And uh, it's, it's most unfortunate. But ag again, hopefully the visibility of it all will engender some response. Now, in terms of my colleagues, uh, I think most of the concern is about trade and about security. Some are concerned about human rights. Yeah. Mostly, uh, we have a good, across the aisle and across the Senate, uh, Republicans in the House and in the Senate care about human rights, and, and Democrats too, but you would expect that. But we, <laughs> no, but, but the Republicans have been very good on human rights, uh, again, all over the world, but in this case, uh, in China. Uh, and so uh, we're hopeful that we can raise the visibility of it and hopefully get... Uh, some people freed or some t a big spotlight to shine on it. Uh, so, the, but the, uh, what the Chinese are doing in the South China Sea has, people have concerns. One of our colleagues, Joe Courtney, is on the House um, Armed Services Committee uh, who is with us on this trip. Uh, the, um, I think some of the, uh, the, tr the trade issues are, I don't know what this trade agreement is going to be. Mm -hmm. It really is interesting to me, and Rosa can attest to this because she's been a champion on the trade issues. They said they are agreed on so many things, except they don't know how they're going to enforce it. Well, that means nothing, right? If, if you don't know how you're going to enforcement is key to any trade agreement. Is that more on the subject than you wanted to know? No, that's very good. I mean, but can I, so does, uh, maybe just a follow-up, quick follow-up on that. So, I mean, I don't think the Trump administration's approach to China is driven by human rights considerations, more commercial. Um, but, I mean, do you, does that mean that you find areas potentially of agreement on their approach? It's a pretty tough approach that they've taken towards China. Well, I don't, I don't ever criticize the president outside the country. Okay. But I will say this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will say this. Just this isn't a, a, a cruise. It's just a difference of opinion. Mm -hmm. I really did think uh, that when the president said he was going to China, welcome to the club. You know, we've been doing this for a long time. But 
I thought one of the biggest opportunities was for the United States and the EU to join together the hugest market in the world, right? The two combined and use that leverage in negotiation with the Chinese. So I wasn't pleased when the president then put tariffs on the EU. It started to kind of weaken that uh, strength that could have been there vis-a-vis China. And uh, people have explanations. They say, well, they just want to use their leverage, this or that. But the Chinese enjoyed it a lot because it, it, they, they knew what the opportunity was and they saw that it was a missed one. Okay. Um, let's talk about politics. Um, Does anybody want to talk politics? <laughs> so, so your party won a pretty decisive victory uh, in the 2000. And it, and it seems to me that you did it, um, you know, basically focusing on, on bread and butter issues and principally on, on health care. And in fact, you went out of your way not to focus on Donald Trump. Um, uh, and it worked brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the question is, is this the ticket to success in 2020? And the reason I ask is, I mean, it, it sure seems like Donald Trump and the Republicans are moving very aggressively to try to turn this into something other than a debate about issues, um, but more a debate about um, extremism, I think. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struck even just by, um, you mentioned Mitch McConnell. Uh, over the weekend, Mitch McConnell urged Republicans to make 2020 a referendum on on socialism on on extremism and I, I don't know that Republicans implicit message seems to be something like you think our guy can't be trusted with the car keys look at your guys you know I mean it seems like that's the direction that that they're trying to take that and is is that something that you need to respond to or do you need to just focus on the issues on kind of lunch pail issues and well, thank you for acknowledging our tremendous victory in, 20, in 2018. Uh, and the way we won is we developed, the members developed of the agenda. And it was very simple. For the people, lower health care costs by lowering the cost of prescription drugs, bigger paychecks by building the infrastructure of America in a green way, and cleaner government, HR1, to lower the role of money in politics. That was our message complete. There are other, shall we say, exuberances floating around out there, uh, including to talk about. But it wasn't about him, because let me just say this to you if you want to talk politics. There's nothing that the president is about in terms of his policy. We're just talking policy now. That the Republicans in Congress haven't been for worse longer. Name any subject. Denial on the climate, uh, women's right to choose, LGBTQ, Uh, gun safety, immigration, fairness in our economy. He's our guy. So when people say, how come they're not walking away from him? Why would they? He's everything they're about. I'm not talking personally. I'm just talking policy-wise. So so in this election, it was about our our candidates vis-a-vis the Republican candidate. It wasn't about him. It was about who they would be voting for in the election. And our candidates, they were spectacular. I mean, we had a, our message like a jackhammer. 
This is the message, this is it. We own the ground, not yielding one grand of, grain of sand in terms of getting out the vote. And we had the resources largely enhanced by small donors, as a matter of fact. So, but but that is, or they're the three-legged stool on which the candidates stand. And we had top-notch, fabulous candidates who knew their why. They knew why they were running. They knew what they cared about. They knew how to communicate in a direct way to connect with the voters. And so we had this tremendous victory, a net gain of 40 seats in the most gerrymandered, voter-suppressed arena that you could ever imagine. Just think what we'll do when we can improve uh, that arena, as a matter of fact. So uh, as we go forward, when they talk about that, you know that's just a sign of their bankruptcy. They don't have anything to talk about, so they talk about socialism or something. Is that what they said? Yeah. Who knows? But, uh, <laughs> but, I, do, but I do think that um, in all – I intend – I'm going to talk politics. I intend to have this election won by this November because by a year in advance, that's when people decide they're going to run for office. So I want our, we, we want the message to be clear. We will retain the majority. We will grow the majority. And we will do so because our candidates are doing their constituent work. Uh, we are, again, owning the ground, drilling down with our message, uh, having the resources to win. So if you were a Republican who might be thinking about running for Congress, mm -hmm. you have to look at the strength of the person you want to unseat. And if you're a member of Congress and you're a Republican and we're deciding that you might be ready for retirement, you may have to remember that it's going to cost you a lot of money to win or to lose. But if you win, you will be serving in the minority. Maybe you'd like to go do something else. <laughs> so so by, by my count, there are... 78 Democrats running for president. <laughs> All right. So far. So, 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 far. so, I, I, so far. You know, I've exaggerated. There's 18 and counting. More to come. More to come. At least one we know of. Any one of them would be a great president of the United States. I'm not going to ask that question. Like, who do you, who do you favor? Um, but I'm saying it anyway. Yes. <laughs> but I, I, a different question. Um, uh, as you know, a number of these candidates uh, running, are, they're calling for changes in the rules of the game in American politics um, about aligning the electoral college with the national popular vote, significantly increasing the number of justices on the Supreme Court, and at least in the case of Elizabeth Warren, doing away, and maybe she's not the only one now, doing away with what remains of the filibuster um, in, in the Senate. And I wondered you know, as someone who has lived through reforms and, um, you know, what you think about this approach and, and these ideas, I mean, if this is, first of all, these are a good set of ideas or even one or, or two of them, pursuing these reforms, whether you think that most Americans would support them, um, you know, or whether there's a, an alternative way to, to go. I mean, and, uh, I mean, one can walk and chew gum at the same time, but I mean, you just focused on a set of issues that you think if Democrats pursue, they're going to win on those issues and they're, gonna, they're either going to hold their seat or they're going to take new seats. 
This is introducing something rather different. Well, let me just say that I, su I support the uh, popular vote mm -hmm. initiative. As far as increasing more uh, um, justices and some of the other things, you know, this ele elections are all about people's security, uh, their financial stability. That's why health care costs are about their health, but it's also about their financial security. That's why bigger paychecks are so important to them. And that's why ending the doubts that they have about uh, Congress working for the people's interest, not the special interest, and ending dark special interest money in politics means something to them. These other things, mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're interesting, and, that, and that's an academic discussion. But for them, they want to know what does this mean to me, to my family? So we're about the kitchen table. We are about the kitchen table. What are, how do people survive? How, does, how could it be that everybody's talking about how the economy's doing this, that, and market and indicators and all that, where 40% of the American people, if they had a $500 unexpected expense, the carburetor, the water boiler, whatever it is, they just don't have the money to pay for it. So we're about our bigger paychecks. Rosa DeLauro had a bill passed, equal pay for equal work. That was historic, and that's about bigger paychecks. Um, the, so I, I, I think all that's interesting mm. at this academic institution, but this is about what happens in their lives. And all of these other issues are our responsibility, and they want us to review them but that what they want to know is what does this election mean to them? Right. Okay, thank you. We're going to open it up uh, now to um, to questions, and um, so there's um, ushers um, moving around with uh, roving mics. Um, and what I would ask you is um, to briefly, um, you know, introduce yourself and uh, and try to make the question as concise as possible so I can get in as many people as possible. And we'll start with this woman right down here in the front in the green. Hello, uh, my name is Clemens. I'm an alumna from the LSE in the Geography Department. Where are we now? From the Geography Department yes. at the mm -hmm. LSE. She's uh, right up there. Oh, up there. Yeah. Hi. We went upstairs. I, w I would stand, but my knee is kind of <laughs> problematic. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I... Uh, a few days ago, in 60 Minutes, you called for um, the Democratic Party to have a, a sort of a centered message. And yeah. uh, you also mentioned that people like AOC were sort of on the margin of the Democratic Party and represented a few people within the House and within the party. So I wanted to ask you a sort of double question. Uh, first, is it a sort of, could it be a missed opportunity on young people that put a lot of... Um, faith and hopes in those so-called socialists and right. politics in the Democratic Party? And if not, do you think that it will ever be part of the Democratic Party program in maybe not 2020, but 2024, 2028? Like, yeah, is it yeah. ongoing? Oh. Well, let me say you're, you're referencing a comment because and when we won this election, it wasn't in districts like mine or Alexandria's, however, wonder, I'm, I'm, she's a wonderful member of Congress, I think all of our colleagues will attest. But those are districts that are solidly democratic, this glass of water 
would win with a D next to its name <laughs> in those districts. And not to, not to diminish the, the uh, uh, exuberance and the personality and the rest of Alexandria and the other members. But when I said three, they were talking about three that were getting a good deal of press on it. But the 43 districts, we won 43, net gain of 40, were right down the middle, mainstream, um, hold the center victories. And if we're going to be helping the one in five children in America who goes to street sweep hungry at night, who lives in poverty in our country, we have to win. Now, I'm a liberal from San Francisco. I can compare my liberal credentials across the board. And I said to them, anything you're about, I got that sign in my basement 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Single payer, all of this. I had been there, done that, pushing a stroller many decades ago with all of that. So I share of those values, but we must win. It doesn't mean that lower health costs, bigger paychecks, cleaner government, that's a progressive message. That's not, that, what we're saying is to have a message that appeals to people in a way that does not menace them, that really does address their concerns. When we win and we have the White House and we have that, then we can expand uh, our exuberances uh, to some, uh, some other things. But our message, our progressive message is down the middle, but it is, it is again, addressing the concerns of America's working families. It isn't, um, again, a message that, that you were describing works great in my district. I get over 80% in my district, and, the, and these folks do in their districts as well. But that's not where we have to win uh, the elections. It doesn't mean we don't curb those enthusiasm, reach for the moon, put out there what you want, go for it, talk about it. But when we have to go into the districts that we have to win, we have to call that which we have the most in common with those people. Not compromising our values, our principles, not even changing our message, just taking a piece of the message as we go forward. This is about winning. This is about winning because so much is at stake. The Constitution of the United States is at stake. The environment, the whole climate of our country is at stake. Who we are as a people, a nation of immigrants, is at stake. So who are we as a country? The United States of America. We are our ideals in the Constitution. We are values in our budget, which is the fight that we have in Congress. We are the, a nation of immigrants, which are being... I mean, it's just... I'll, I'll go back to that in a minute. And... and um, we are this beautiful land mass that God gave us that is being degraded. So everything is at stake in the election. So how do we take the concerns that we have to victory in a way that, again, is um, values-based, progressive, and um, well-organized, focused like a laser on winning? And let me just say on immigration, because... I wish I had my phone. I don't have my phone. But Ronald Reagan is a president that I quoted most during the campaign. Ronald Reagan. Let me just read you what he said. I usually have it on my phone. He said this. I'm not going to read the whole thing. He said, um, oh, I'll read it. 
Since this is the last speech that I will give as president, I think it is fitting to leave one final thought and observation about a country which I love. The final speech as president of the United States. Does that get your attention? It is a great life force of each generation of new Americans that guarantees that America's triumph shall continue unsurpassed into the next century and beyond. Thanks to each new wave of new arrivals to this land of opportunity, we're a nation forever young, forever bursting with energy and new ideas, and always on the cutting edge, edge always leading the world to the next frontier. This quality is vital to our future as a nation. If we ever close the door to new Americans, our leadership in the world would soon be lost. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan, President George Herbert Walker Bush, President Bill Clinton, President George W. Bush, President Barack Obama all subscribed to that revitalization of America that newcomers are, but their hopes determination, optimism, courage. Those are American traits, and those newcomers make America more American until this president. We've got a question up here, uh, up on the right, and then we'll come down here to, uh, to give you Thank you. I'm Elizabeth Debevoise, an LSC alumna from Maryland and a Democrat abroad. Thank All right. you for everything you do. Maryland, that's where I was born. to hear your thoughts on... Um, the greatest strength, threat, weapon um, that the Republican opponents have for the next election. Thank you. The, uh, the confusion. Confusion is their friend. Because, again, we, when we had this debate about the pre-existing condition as a benefit, they all said, right, my colleagues, oh, we're for that. They voted for it over, excuse me, they voted against it for legislation that would eliminate it over and over and over again. So when they, uh, they misrepresent, we have to set the record straight, but that confuses sometimes the public. So what they do is they suffocate the airwaves with money, with messages that are not true. I mean, they're just not true. And then public, people hear one side, the other side, and then they... Their, their plan is that people then say, oh, forget about it. Why should I vote? And that confusion is their uh, biggest uh, message. Now, they'll start talking about, uh, what were they saying? Socialism. and the this, it's, Again, it's a bankruptcy because the, climate, young people know that that is a, a, an imperative that we must as many of when I, my first term as speaker, that was my flagship issue until we had a Democratic president, and then we moved with the Affordable Care Act too. But um, but they're still in denial on that. So when you just and young people, by and large, and you can correct me on this, really don't care about party so much. That's our experience. They care about issues and values and what they care about. So we listen to them, and they care about their job prospects, the cost of their education, climate, women's right to choose, LGBTQ, and other issues, and you may have some uh, others to suggest, and, and there are more. So we just have to show the difference between the two. And one of the major parts of our agenda is HR1, to reduce the role of big money, to stop the voter suppression, to pass the Voting Rights Act, to just restore our democracy. 
We're about build, 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 build the infrastructure of America, build the physical infrastructure for America, education and healthcare and research, and build our democracy, strengthen, uh, strengthen our democracy. And so our our candidates, one at a time, has to demonstrate their his or her why. And our presidentials, whoever emerges, will be the person who has connected with the American people. Authenticity is everything. And when they, they're all, they all have authenticity, but who is able to connect the best, uh, I think will, will win the election and will be the next president of the United States, not worrying about what the Republicans are going to do, just worrying about what we're going to do. I have a question down here. Uh, hi, uh, Gideon Rackman from the Financial Times. Hi, Gideon. Oh. Uh, I- Gideon's with the Financial Times. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm afraid it's another question worrying about what the Republicans might do, because it seems increasingly evident that the President wants to make the face of the Democratic Party, Congressman Omar, AOC, mm-hmm. and to rile up his face by doing that. And some people think he's laying a trap for you. Uh, do you think that's correct? How do you avoid falling into that trap while defending your colleague? Well, I, you know, the, it's not a question of only defending our colleague. It's by, again, you're, you're getting me dangerously close to my uh, leaving the shores of the United States of America. But I would say I don't think any president of the United States should use the tragedy of 9-11 as a political tool. I think that is... Wrong. I think it's beneath the dignity of the office, and I don't think that it plays that well. I, you know, I, I mean, I hope that it doesn't. I have more confidence in the American people than that. We're very proud of each and every one of our colleagues. Um, again, they used me as liberal from San Francisco. 137,000 ads in the last election describing me as a liberal from San Francisco. It didn't work. <laughs> but I am a liberal from San Francisco, <laughs> proudly. So, you know, in other words, I think it's all an indication of their bankruptcy. Where are their ideas? Where are their ideas about lowering, uh, ending the disparity of income in our economy? That's, it's an obscenity, and by the way, it's bad for the economy. What are they going to address the, the, the climate issue, which is, again, a health issue, and a, a jobs issue, a national security issue, and a moral issue to pass on this planet to future generations? They're in denial about that. How do they um, justify their... Well, I, I, I think that they're just going to have to come up with some ideas. And there's a legitimate role for the Republican Party. I say to my Republican friends, and I do have Republican friends, take back your party. This is a grand old party with these great things for our country. You've been hijacked. Take it back. So, and then they say to me, well, we can't beat them in the primary. You have to beat them in the general, and then we'll come after <clears throat> you. Perfect. <laughs> we have a question on Twitter. Well, it wouldn't be a monarchy. We fought a war over that. (laughs) 
but uh, let's say that we can all learn from each other. The, uh, I do think that in the U.S., we probably have more across-the-aisle cooperation than in a parliamentary system, although I see that there's an attempt to do that now with uh, Brexit. Uh, but um, we have two different systems. And, and, and uh, again, I think that respecting the results of elections, uh, encouraging, uh, having a message that appeals to people probably works uh, in, both, in both countries. Uh, but we, we all, I, I really can't speak to the, the British system right now because usually when we come here we're talking about national security, we're talking about intelligence, we're talking about the economy, we're talking about so many things, and this time it's Brexit, 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 Brexit. <laughs> so I'm not in a good place to, to talk about the system because we're used to the Brits being so orderly. <laughs> so orderly. <laughs> We have a question uh, in the green right over here. Yes. Very good. Oh, my goodness. Don't encourage them. <laughs> Party, sorry, the convinced Democratic Party voters to vote for the president, the Democratic candidate president. It's about getting disillusioned Trump voters. It's about getting some of the people in the middle, the white working class that have deserted your party. Now, doesn't that mean you're going to have to go for a white male presidential candidate? Well, doesn't mean that at all. Uh, but I appreciate the question. Uh, now, here's the thing. White women voted Democrat. We're talking about the men. Um, the, um, I think that the election, people will see who connects. That's just the way. It, nobody can tell you it shouldn't come from on high. It's not that we get in a room and say this is the one who can win. No, the people will decide uh, who can win. And uh, we do think that a progressive message that doesn't menace is non-menacing to people to um, uh, whether we're talking about urban centers or rural areas, addresses families, family, fa uh, just how individuals and families are able to sustain their financial viability is really what it is going to be about. And the, um, uh, any one of those candidates on the Democratic side knows why they are running and what they know about and how to communicate on it. So we'll just see. But I don't think anybody can say it will be. Maybe it'd be two women. It's been two men for a long time. And by the way, let me just say this one thing. When, <laughs> when Peter said that I was the highest ranking woman on earth, that makes me cry because I was so hoping that I would be relinquishing that title uh. in the last election. It just breaks my heart to think for a lot of reasons including the fact that we thought we were going to have a woman president. But we may, we may this next time. But I don't think anything uh, forecloses a, an option for um, anybody to win. Let's go back upstairs. Um, how about the woman right there in the red, like second row from the back? Yeah. Good evening. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm from Jamaica. I'm second year politics and IR student. 
And I just wanted to know, do you think pineapple belongs on pizza? No, I don't. No, I don't. I don't. In fact, I'm... Maybe we take a group some Very questions. controversial. When I, when I was running the first time 30 years ago, so plus, um, you're just running around all the time. You're campaigning all the time. Being an Italian-American, I love pizza. And they brought pineapple pizza, and I said... That's a very nice person. I don't want him driving with me anymore. <laughs> Just pineapple pizza, Rosa. Come on. You gotta be but, from but Hawaii. I re- but I fully respect those who. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, pineapple is very good for you. <laughs> we'll take a hand down here in the black shirt. Um, there we go. Um, hi, um, my name's Talua. I'm a third year student here studying politics and international relations as well. Um, gang. And um, sort of going off the last response uh, about white women voting um, Democrat, a lot of white women, an awful amount of white women actually voted for Trump, and it was black women and women of colour in, in 2016 and last year who picked it up for a lot of Democrats in, in very contentious seats. And there are a group of people that often the Democratic Party takes for granted because you assume we're sensible, we're going to vote in that direction. Um, so how, is, how do you, looking at 2020 um, and knowing now how important that subset of voters is, how do you appeal to them? How do you make them feel important like, um, and, and, and implore them to continue voting the way they have, but in, in, in the knowledge of the fact that they are such a crucial base for the party? Well, uh, uh, let me just be clear. I was responding when she said white people voted for Trump, not white women. Uh, my view, and I say this all the time and I've been saying it for years, the smartest voters are African-American women. They know, they know what's real. And they have been um, uh, a tremendous resource to the Democratic Party intellectually, politically, and, and uh, at the grassroots level as well. So none of us has to be convinced of that. Every voter, I think, feels that they're taken for granted. You know, does that right? Because you can't meet everybody, although we encourage people to try to do that. But it is, um, it is important to note that in our house, in our house, the Democratic Caucus is 60% women, people of color, LGBTQ. 60%. When people say, oh, there are only 25% of this or that in the Congress, not in our caucus, 40% of our members are women, many of them women of color. Of our chairman, our seat at the highest seat at the table, um, the chairman, Maxine Waters, is the chair of the uh, Financial Services Committee. Eddie Bernice Johnson is the chair of the uh, Science, Space, and Technology Committee. The list goes on and on of women and people of color having like half of our, half of our um, a top committee chairmanship there. And they are vocal advocates for not only all of the people in America, but for the communities that they represent. Bobby Scott, the chair of the um, Education and Labor Committee, Benny Thompson, the chair of the Homeland Security Committee. I mean, the list goes on and on. 
Uh, so our, our challenge is to make sure that people don't feel that they are taken for granted. But it's very hard to convince individual people of that. Uh, it's what, it's what, what equal pay for equal work. It's about protecting the Affordable Care Act, where 20 million people got uh, health care. But that was only a small part of it. 150 million families got better benefits, uh, lower uh, uh, pre-existing condition benefit, uh, no caps on, on, um, on what insurance companies could cover, lifetime or annual. Uh, if, you're, if you're 26 years old, you can stay on your parents' uh, policy. Being a woman was no longer a pre-existing condition. Protection of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, uh, which would prolong the life of both. Uh, and so, again, uh, it's about the policies that affect people's lives, uh, how we have uh, increased the number of minority women uh, in the House is quite a remarkable thing, and I, I have to make sure that people can see that because when you see somebody who looks like you with a seat at the table and speak, sharing your experience, we find that people find that encouraging. But almost every group that we talk to, this group, don't take us for granted. The Hispanics don't take us for granted. We don't want to take anybody for granted. We can't start with one vote, two votes, three votes, then you get in, into the millions. Uh, but uh, as I say, the, the most reliable Democratic voters, well, the most reliable voters are African and American women in our country. I believe that. Gentleman all the way in the back there. He's got his hand up. Yeah. Uh, I'm Jamie. I work at the International Growth Centre. Um, in London today, there's lots of protests about climate change, and I think there's a sort of big international movement growing now. Yeah. We have about 10 years to try and decarbonise our economy um, and try and get the global economy off its addiction to fossil fuels. So I just wanted to get some of your thoughts on how we do that, how uh, a democratic congress and a democratic president might go about uh, getting the economy off fossil fuels and how you think a Green New Deal uh, in the US and maybe sort of internationally might play into that. I thank you for your question because I think this is the challenge to the generation. As I said before, it's about health, clean air, clean water, public health. It's about jobs, 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 about green, new green technologies where people can be brought in and new technologies and, and uh, 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 more shared prosperity as we build the infrastructure in our country for, uh, for the, uh, in a green way. It's about national security. When we were in uh, Stuttgart this week, uh, was the most recent uh, affirmation for us of what, this being a national security issue. All along, when, as I said, when I was speaker before, this was my flagship issue. I established a select committee on it, and we, um, the generals, the admirals, the national security experts said this is a security issue with rising sea levels and, uh, well, you know all of the things, and if you ask me, I'll say more. And then uh, it is a moral issue. Uh, if you believe, as do I, that this is God's creation and we have a moral responsibility to be good stewards of it, that's a shared view with the evangelicals in America. And not all of them, some of them just give, just, just are not coming our way for, for an issue that is separate from that, and you know what it is. But the, um, 
But we did work um, with uh, President Bush even, although he was in denial about climate, uh, he, did want, um, he did want some funding guarantees for uh, nuclear, and I wanted renewables. So we passed the big, a bill that was the biggest energy bill in the history of our country. He didn't get his nuclear because Japan and all the other things, but we got our renewables. And it was like taking tens of millions of cars off the road by raising the emissions standards and the rest. And the authorities in that legislation enabled President Obama later to, um, uh, to help protect the environment and save some of what we could about the Paris Accords. Uh, the, so uh, now we are again formed another, when the Republicans came in, they eliminated the select committee, they, they, uh, they took away different trash cans, so you put all the trash in one trash, I mean it really was pathetic. But, but um, so now we're at it again, but the more people are aware of the challenge that is there, and I think it would be important in this presidential election uh, to be talking about this as a health, jobs, security, and moral issue. Because even if you don't believe religiously in God's creation, you all know that we have a moral responsibility to future generations to hand off uh, uh, the um, planet. And, and again, it's good for the economy. You know, you know there's, it's, it, they let them sell a bill of goods that, oh, it's jobs or, or green. Uh, we have a number of uh, proposals that are out there. The Green Deal, is, uh, New Deal, is one of them. I'm, my, I, what I call is I'm looking for the green ideal. Let's get everybody's best uh, suggestions, put them together, um, and, and take this to the public. Because public sentiment is going to win the day on this. They no longer can go hide on this subject. Public sentiment is everything. Abraham Lincoln, here I go quoting another Republican president. <laughs> Public sentiment is everything. With it, you can accomplish almost anything. Without it, practically nothing. Abraham Lincoln. And to the extent that the public is engaged in this, and God bless everyone who, who um, turns out to speak out for this because it's, it, it's everything. And to ignore it, is a real disservice uh, to f the present and to future generations. So thank you uh, for your interest in it. We'll come on down here. <clears throat> Hi, uh, hello. Uh, my name is Sam I'm a research fellow in the Department of Media Communications here at LSE. Wait, wait um, for another mic, because oh. that one... Tell me your name reason. again, dear. Hi. There we go. Uh, my name is Sam Mejias. I'm a research fellow in the Department of Media and Communications. I'm an American. I've been living here for about 11 years. And um, one of the things I noticed in 2016 and, and onwards is that the, the norms, the sort of political norms that we have in our country have been flouted quite frequently. Um, and things like tax returns, things like the Emoluments Clause. Um, so there, there are so many unspoken rules of American governance that have been sort of put to the wayside in yeah. the past two, two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And my question to you is, is should the Democrats be reelected um, in the House? Should they take the Senate? Should they take the presidency? What steps do you think Congress should and could take to institutionalize some of those norms in order to make sure that these types of things don't happen again in the future? Well, already uh, members have legislation, Congresswoman DeLauro, members of the Ways and Means Committee who are here today have legislation uh, to codify if you're running for president, if you're a nominee of the party, 
you have to show your tax returns because what what are you hiding you know why not you know what's what's your secret and then uh, in terms of the emoluments clause well elections have ramifications and one of the most important parts of a presidential election is article 3 the the judicial branch if, if you have a president who is ignoring all of the sense of decency well don't get me started. Okay, how can I say that? <laughs> if there happens to be a president who will not adhere to the norms and just says, I'm just not doing it, um, uh, and, and he appoints judges or an attorney general who says the president is above the law, I don't think a president can be indicted, this or that, then there's a real problem. But our, our, um, our country is a great country, we can withstand anything. Maybe not two terms, though. <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted I want to get some points for restraint. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, my colleagues? We'll right. take the gentleman, David, right back there. Yes. Hi, David. Oh, uh, oh, no. <clears throat> oh, David, way back there. Yeah. One second. Hi. We're going to need another mic. For some reason, some of these mics are not working properly. Um, that even happens at the LS. David said he was from California. Thank you. Yes, he did. Yep, yeah. from California. So one of the areas in which there seems to be widespread agreement among the population in the United States is for, uh, is for better gun control policy, and yet it seems nearly impossible to pass. What ideas do you as speaker have for trying to improve the safety of Americans with respect to guns? Well, we, uh, we passed H.R. 8, which was uh, designated one of the top uh, bills. It was eight because it was eight years since Gabby Gifford, the assault on Gabby Gifford's life, so we designated it eight, and we passed it. And we passed it even with some Republican votes in the House. And now we have to, with... Um, public sentiment, get the Senate to take up the legislation. We're talking about common sense background checks, which will save the most li of all of the um, ideas that come forth. The one that saves the most lives is keeping guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. And the um, and this we're not going away until we pass this legislation. And that's why H.R. 1 was so important, because it reduces the role of money and the gun lobby and the rest of that in politics. Now, we have practically any no, two or three people in our caucus who maybe get support from the gun lobby because that's what their districts are about. Uh, but overwhelmingly, uh, we had a big, strong vote. And we have to pass this legislation. We just have to. It is... Um, well, Mike Thompson from California is the head of our task force on gun safety and that, gun violence prevention. But part of our, our team this time in passing the bill was Congresswoman McBath of Georgia. She lost her son to gun violence. You know why? Because the radio was too loud in the car that he and his teenage friends were in. Boom. Gone. But she took her grief and turned it into action and then decided to run for Congress. 
and she was part of helping to pass the legislation. But this is, I mean, we are not going away until we get this done. Uh, that is our promise. It has been, and as soon as we were elected, it was one of the earliest pieces of legislation that we passed. We just observed our 100 days. I think that's why the president's tweeting. He doesn't want us to get any publicity on our 100 days. <laughs> you have to remember, in the first like three weeks of it, right. we had a shutdown of government that we had to um, had to address, and uh, we passed in a bipartisan way. Rosa DeLauro, an appropriator very much a part of putting together what we would do to protect the border, secure the border, bipartisan, bicameral legislation sent to the president. He signed the bill to open up government and then decided he was going to uh, disrupt the Constitution of the United States. But that's an, another story. But we are very proud of what we were able to pass, whether it was equal pay for equal work, whether it was H.R. 1 to stop the, the big role of money in politics. Uh, we are very proud uh, of our agenda that goes to for the, for the people. And, um, and the gun part of that is that was early for us because of its importance. Folks. I am here. Let me just say this one thing because yeah. I want you to know this because I, I, I quote this a lot and um, in the interest of time, I will read it rather than remembering it. Um, here we are at this wonderful institution, and somebody that I quote a lot is Arnold Toynbee, who in 1925 was part of research history, whatever, here. And here's what he said, and see if this doesn't sound familiar to you. In a study of civilizations, the great British historian associated with the London School of Economics, doesn't say that here, he wrote that over time, society, you know that he wrote the great histories of, of, of civilization, you know that, but he's, and then he says, he found that over time, societies face some of the same challenges we are facing today. He wrote that the beginning of a hopeful country, the beginning of a hopeful country, the political leadership formed a creative minority, minority meaning the, the governing group, that inspired and led to the flowering of civilization. He also wrote that in some nations, leaders became the dominant minority of exploiters focused on their own wealth and power. Toynbee suggests that these competing mindsets and motivations create schisms in the body social and schisms of the soul of the body politic. Does that sound familiar to you? This is really what it's, it's all about. It's about trickle-down economics, trickle-down trade. It's about not going right to bubble up. What is there for the people? Well, that's our agenda for the people. But it has happened so many times that uh, we can recognize it uh, in, other, in other societies. Uh, so I thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts about where we are on um, the differences that I hope the Republicans would take back their party. But until they do, we have an imperative to reduce the disparity of income and equity, to face the, the climate crisis in a very effective way that unites people and, and unites people. We, when we came in, we said we're going to be for the people. We're going to have transparency so that the public can see 
and therefore understand clearly what was at stake and what it meant to them. That we would strive to find common ground where we could, stand our ground like a rock, that would be Thomas Jefferson, where we couldn't, but try for bipartisanship. And to remember the guidance of our founders. I mean, they were so brilliant, but they gave us this guidance, e pluribus unum, from many one. They couldn't imagine how many we would be or how different we would be from each other. But they knew we had to focus on being one. So as we look for our opportunities, the president says he wants to do um, building infrastructure. That's one of our priorities. He says he wants to reduce the cost of prescription drugs. That's one of our priorities. We try to find the places where we can find agreement to be unifying in our country rather than dividing. So it's a, a very... Um, we think we have an historic challenge that is beyond politics. It's not about Democrats or Republicans. It's not about partisanship. It's about patriotism. And it is... Uh, our founders at the beginning, they said, the times have found us. We think the times has found us now to save our democracy that they created with such courage so many years ago in their fight for independence from this great country. <laughs> Please join me in thanking Mr. Pelosi.